Welcome to the Free Range Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Livermore. This episode is sponsored by the Program on Law, Communities, and the Environment at the University of Virginia School of Law. With me today is Lisa Heinzerling, an environmental law professor at Georgetown and former associate administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency's Office of Policy during the Obama administration. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, thanks for having me. So as you well know, uh, the Supreme Court has issued some very important and very controversial decisions in the last few years on a wide range of topics. Um, at this point, it's probably to say that this will be one of the most consequential courts in U.S. history. Um, we just don't know what the consequences are going to be yet. Um, and um, of course, environmental law is one of those areas that the court's been pretty active. Uh, in particular, two decisions I think many folks would cite are West Virginia v. EPA, which was, of course, a decision on EPA's power to regulate greenhouse gases under the Clean Air Act, or at least one manifestation of that power. Um, and also in separate case, second v. EPA, which was on the Clean Water Act and jurisdictional issues related to that statute. And these are huge decisions that are going to have major consequences for U.S. environmental law. And of course, one of the things that's very striking about them is they represent a very big shift from a not that far recent past, <laughs> um, in particular, when Justice Kennedy was the swing vote on the court. And we got decisions on very similar um, or very closely related topics, um, decisions like Massachusetts v. EPA on the Clean Air Act and greenhouse gas emissions, and Rapinos, which of course was very, very similar on to second on jurisdictional issues under the Clean Water Act. So, Maybe just to get us started with this conversation, we can we can think back to the to that happier time. Um, uh, you know, again, not that long ago, although you know, somewhat getting on in years. Um, you, of course, played a huge role in the mass VEPA case, so that might be a good starting place. Um, this again is obviously, as you well know, the decision where the court finds that the Clean Air Act unambiguously grants EPA authority to regulate greenhouse gases. Um, so, so just to get us started in the lead up to that decision, and that when that case was being litigated, and um, in the years um, in the years immediately prior to that, you know, what was the state of the law and politics of greenhouse gas regu regulation as you as you recall it? Right, this is like the early two thousands, and how did you see the Mass EPA case kind of playing into the overall dynamic of the time. This, of course, was the administration of George W. Bush. And the Bush administration came into office um, with uh, 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 an EPA that I think was prepared to move on climate change, actually. Certainly the bulk of the agency, the civil servants, but even the head of the agency at the time, former New Jersey Governor Christine Todd Whitman, had uh, made um, pretty forceful statements about um, activities um, on climate change. And that all very quickly got pulled back. And, uh, and among the biggest manifestations of that uh, kind of reversal or change in direction was EPA's decision to deny a petition filed by citizen groups, bunch, a bunch of different kind of mostly little environmental groups, 
that had um, in uh, the 1990s, actually, first petitioned EPA to regulate greenhouse gases under the Clean Air Act. Now, one of the features of modern environmental law is that a lot of what happens that's significant in federal environmental law happens as a consequence of citizens, either ordinary private citizens or often uh, public interest groups representing environmental causes. Um, It comes as a result of petitions to the agency to do its job under the environmental statutes. And so these, these... these entities petitioned the agency and said, please regulate greenhouse gases from automobiles under the Clean Air Act. We think you have the authority to do it. and Indeed, we think that you know that greenhouse gases are endangering public health and welfare, which is the trigger for regulation under most of the Clean Air Act. So the Bush administration finally answered that petition and said no. No, it said we don't have the authority to regulate greenhouse gases under the Clean Air Act. And we wouldn't regulate even if we had the authority because we don't think it's a good idea policy-wise and and said some other things about why they just didn't like the idea of doing regulation under the Clean Air Act. And so, in other words, this was not an easy period, I would say. This is in brief, obviously, a brief treatment, but this was not an easy period for environmentalists. Many environmentalists were horrified by the environmental record of the Bush administration at the time. Although, you know, I found myself during the Trump administration right. on occasion looking back with nostalgia <laughs> at that administration. But so that the the question then was what to do about that negative finding, because that was a that was a decision that said we are not going to regulate greenhouse gases. That is, we are not going to address climate change under the federal statute that makes the most sense for that purpose, given that greenhouse gases are are, are airborne. Um, and so, uh, so the, the, the petitioners uh, challenged that decision, and that made its way to the Supreme Court. And a decision in which, as you suggested, Mike, the, the um, uh, Supreme Court uh, made a 5-4 decision with Justice Kennedy really providing the deciding vote, the court said, EPA, actually, you're wrong on each count. You have the authority to regulate under the Clean Air Act. And in fact, the definition of air pollutants under the Clean Air Act is so broad uh, that it clearly allows and and indeed in appropriate circumstances requires you to regulate greenhouse gases. And secondly, the court said that EPA couldn't, given that it had authority, it couldn't say, oh, you know, even if we had authority, we wouldn't regulate anyway because we really don't want to. We really have other ideas about what the appropriate policy is. And the court said, you really have to speak in the language of the statute. And therefore, because the statute turns on harm to health and to the um, public welfare, that is largely the environment, you need to speak in those terms and tell us either that we're not being endangered by greenhouse gases or that we are. And if we are, you need to regulate so that's a that's a, a, a really quite um, uh, enormous uh, decision in terms of just the the breadth uh, and the clarity of the ruling that gave EPA at the time I think almost everybody thought it gave EPA the authority under the Clean Air Act to regulate these pollutants that were warming the planet and to regulate them under all the different kinds of provisions of the Act mm-hmm. stationary sources automobiles and so on down the line. 
Um, so that's the sort of moment we're in. We're in a moment where a, a, uh, an administration that was not favorable to the environment lost because it hadn't been protective enough and lost in the Supreme Court. Right. With And, you know, a Supreme Court that did have a, was kind of on traditional, on a traditional understanding, had a majority of conservative justices, right? Absolutely. It was not a liberal court even then. Right. Um, one of the interesting features of Mass v. EPA, which, you know, we'll, we'll probably kind of return to this issue as we, as we kind of march our way through the last, you know, 15, 20 years, is, um, is deference, right? Because as you noted, you know, this was, the, the setup of Mass EPA was, it was contesting what the agency wanted to do, right? The agency was saying, we don't want to regulate, here are our reasons. And it was, you know, public interest groups and ultimately states that were on the other side. And, um, and the majority opinion, which was holding kind of in favor of the environment, um, was not being deferential to the agency's views, right? This was like, the opinion was, this is what the statute says, right? It says, you know, that uh, greenhouse gases are a pollutant. And yeah, there's some discretionary decisions that you have, but that discretion is going to be pretty constrained by the text of the statute. And of course, in dissent, Justice Scalia, who was at least at, at certain times, a proponent of Chevron deference, um, he certainly fashioned himself that way, made a big deal about the, the issue of deference and the... Um, you know, the, you know, just the, the fact that the court wasn't, um, you know, that was kind of running against the agency's um, discretion. And so, so that's, that's an interesting feature of this decision. And one of the questions I just have for you, you know, as we, you know, see, see how things have kind of proceeded, um, you know, obviously there was an election and Barack Obama was elected shortly after that decision came out. Um, And so Obama was going to regulate greenhouse gases under the Clean Air Act if, if there was discretion, um, and certainly under Mass v. EPA. So I wonder how important you think it was ultimately that the court um, decided on statutory grounds versus discretionary grounds. And again, this is a bit of a fine point for non-lawyers, but it's going to come up later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, and just to take one step backwards to bring everybody aboard, um, uh, the, the, the court has had long held that if a statute is clear, the statute clearly, you know, sort of tells the agency what to do in a particular circumstance. Then the agency um, it can't say, well, we want to do otherwise and then get deference for that position. The agency knew, needs to do what the statute clearly tells it to do. And so that's the kind of the kind of one to um, process of so-called Chevron deference was to look to see whether the statute was clear. If so, whatever the statute said clearly had to govern. If the statute was ambiguous, then the agency got a, a great deal of deference in those days. And as you say, what's so interesting about what the, the conservatives did in dissent in Massachusetts is they embraced that Chevron principle wholeheartedly, <laughs> even though the EPA's decision was of momentous significance, momentous mm-hmm. in terms of the environment, in terms of economics, in terms of the greatest threat to the planet um, uh, in, in environmental terms. The, the agency was saying, we're not going to use the most sort of obviously relevant statutory tool for regulating this enormous problem. So a hugely important decision. And it's Justice Scalia scolds the majority for not deferring. And I think this is going to come up in just a few minutes um, when we talk about the more recent cases. Right. So it's just a super interesting um, dynamic there. And then, um, and, you know, so of course you served in the Obama administration. um, 
And, you know, when the aftermath of, of Mass v. EPA was, was very much uh, structuring um, the agency's decision-making and structuring people's broader views about what the agency's authority was. Um, yeah, one, one question I just have is, again, the majority could have, um, well, obviously, no, the, the, the decision could have gone some different ways, right? So obviously the decision went the way it went, um, that the agency has the authority and it's actually not a question of deference. Like it, it, it's just part of the statute. It's unambiguous. Another way that the court could have gone and did not go um, very emphatically was to say, it's unambiguous that the agency doesn't have any authority. It could have reached that decision. And then obviously could have said, well, the agency has discretion. It's decided that it doesn't want to regulate now, but it could change its mind later. Um, so just imagining that counterfactual where the, you know, there was that kind of, let's just say Justice Kennedy had decided to vote for with the conservatives, but only on the discretionary grounds or something like that. Do you think that would have mattered much for the Obama administration if they had understood, okay, the court was clear, we have discretion and we're just going to change our minds um, versus we have a statutory obligation to um, essentially either regulate or explain why we're not going to? I think that's a very interesting question. I think ultimately the actions that the agency ended up taking over that at eight-year period, I'm not sure they would have differed if the, um, if the command or if the instruction from the Supreme Court was stated in terms of the agency's discretion to figure out what to do or stated in terms as that once you find endangerment of public health and welfare, you need to take action. I think what that that difference did, and as you say, it is a kind of subtle one, but a really important one, is what it did is it allowed the agency maybe more in a way politically, but but to say, we have to do this. Not only, you know, is this something we're inclined to do anyway? President Obama campaigned in part on taking on climate change, but it also meant that the agency could say, we have to do this. Right. Absolutely. You know, there's another interesting counterfactuals since we're playing, playing that game, historical counterfactuals, which is it may have mattered even more the, the, the kind of the way the decision was written if John McCain had become president of the United States in 2008, because um, he would have faced an enormous amount of pressure within his party to not act on climate change, but um, he obviously had been quite good on climate issues for a long part of his career. So that's another kind of, you know, back when the decision came out, you know, no one knew how that election was going to play out. For sure. Yes, for sure. And the, the, and the, the, the idea that the statute speaks clearly and gives the agency instructions to do a particular job matters greatly, depending on which person is in office. Right. Absolutely. Um, okay. So uh, maybe the thing to do is to, we'll, we'll kind of follow through on the greenhouse gas track <laughs> in time, and then we can go back and rewind and, and talk about the Clean Water Act. So, so obviously, you know, if we fast forward on greenhouse gases, we have the Obama administration acting, um, you know, under this quite clear authority under Massachusetts EPA. Uh, it's regulating greenhouse gas emissions from automobiles. It goes on. Um, and we don't have to march through like every decision here. <laughs> of course, it just would be a lot, but it goes on to regulate greenhouse gas emissions under different uh, statutory authority having to do with um, uh, certain kinds of stationary sources. And then of course we have the really big um, uh, uh, initiative, the Clean Power Plan to regulate greenhouse gases of stationary sources under you know, a particular statutory provision. Um, and so 111, I think we can go ahead and say it. <laughs> Uh, we're going to have to, right? So, uh, um, so then, uh, so that's, so that's that. So, th so, um, you know, 
broadly, again, we can maybe return to the details if we, if we want to, but it's, it's a big regulatory program. Uh, so how, let's see, I'm just trying to think of the timeline. You know, the Clean Power Plan at least was, was initially happening and maybe quite a bit of development while you were at the agency, I would, I would think. Yes. Yes. Yeah. The, the very beginning of the Section 111 rule that became the Clean Power Plan um, started to be developed um, while I was at EPA. There were a suite of possibilities under the Clean Air Act for the EPA to take on. And I think just about everybody agreed that uh, an appropriate way to kind of stage those those different actions was to look at both the, the authorities of the, the agency, obviously, um, but also the amount of um, good that could be done through mm-hmm. rule. And power plants, of course, are one of the largest um, sources of greenhouse gases, um, and specifically coal-fired power plants. And so the, the agency started to try to develop what is it that um, we can do with respect to power plants under um, Section 111 of the Clean Air Act, which gives EPA the responsibility to regulate um, stationary sources. Again, that that the categories of stationary sources like power plants that endanger public health and welfare. And it tells EPA to set emission limits based on um, the best system of emissions reduction. And then what the, the, is supposed to happen under that section for with respect to um, existing sources like existing power plants is there's, the states are supposed to um, actually make sure that those emission limits are met. And so the EPA started that developing that rule um, early on. Right. Okay, good. And of course, it's not like uh, the, the agency snaps his fingers and suddenly there's a rule. There's a huge process. And this was, it was very complicated, obviously. Um, you know, there was also legislative action happening at the, you know, during the early portion of the Obama administration. There was some hope that there was going to be, you know, major potentially sweeping climate legislation. The agency obviously was involved um, helping to provide counsel on that. Um, so there was a lot going on in those in those early years during the development of the Clean Power Plan. But eventually, well, there was an election in 2012, and then the Clean Power Plan comes out. And um, of course, there was this very bonkers uh, litigation history um, where very unusually um, the there was a, a, a motion to stay the clean power plan, which is typically not granted on major public health, public welfare types of regulations. Cause the idea being like, it's important that we get this stuff on the books while we litigate it. Um, the stay was denied by the DC circuit as you, of course you know all of this very well, but just to recount it um, and the Supreme court takes up on cert the denial of the stay and um, and then grants the stay. So the um, so the regulation does not go in place uh, during the kind of ending of the Obama administration. And then of course there was a 2016 election and Donald Trump takes over. So uh, so you know we just a couple of minutes ago we were speculating about how the McCain administration would have potentially dealt with Massachusetts v EPA being kind of rule of law oriented perhaps one would hope have hoped that they would have been and having a president who was fairly sympathetic to climate issues um, the Trump administration 
uh, w- w- was different <laughs> than that. And so, I mean, how much do you think, again, just thinking back to MSVEPA, like how much do you think it mattered um, that, you know, that this was on statutory, the decision was on statutory versus discretionary grounds when it came time for the Trump administration to decide how they were going to respond to the um, come to the clean power plan, to the reality that the agency was very far along on regulating um, greenhouse gas emissions from power plants. We should also note there were, regu- just to reiterate, there were all other greenhouse gas regulations on the books already having to do with stationary sources and having to do with some other programs as well. Yeah, well, I think that one important intervening event um, should be noted, which is that the Supreme Court had in, in the in the years between had uh, struck down um, an EPA's application of a permitting requirement to um, power plants that emitted, uh, or to lots of sources that that emitted greenhouse gases, and the Supreme Court. Effectively, this is my reading, I'm not sure it's everybody's reading, but my reading of the case is that what the Supreme Court effectively did was to say, you can't say that air pollutant in the statute, which Mm -hmm. is the trigger for just about all regulation, having an air pollutant and having one that endangers public health and welfare, you can't say that every air pollutant includes, every mention of air pollutant includes greenhouse gases. You have to look at the context of the program. And in this case, EPA's rule threatened to usher in permitting for lots and lots of sources that hadn't been in the program. And so the court rejected that rule. And so that, 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 um, distinction that you rightly emphasize between, uh, statutory authority and and discretion had kind of, um, because of the Supreme Court, had become less pronounced. Mm -hmm. Because other than the CARS program, which was the subject of Massachusetts, I think we were already on track to have to prove in every case that a particular program was appropriate for regulation. So by the time the Trump administration came in, they'd already had their their kind of deregulatory agenda, the, the way, the path for that softened a little bit by the Supreme Court. Right. Yeah, that's very interesting. That's a, that's a good point. Um, and also it's interesting because that's that was, you know, essentially the same court that decided Mass v. EPA um, also decided that case, UARG. Um, Which is so, imp- so mind-boggling, if I may say so, mm-hmm. because there they said, we are not going to defer because this is a huge question whether to, one of the things they said almost in passing is this is a really big question to whether to subject these sources to this permitting program for the first time. And so, um, and so we we're, we're not going to defer. And in fact, started almost said Congress needs to speak more, more clearly, effectively said that. So just compare that to Massachusetts versus EPA. What's the difference? Massachusetts versus EPA involved an even more enormous decision by the agency. Mm-hmm. We are not going to regulate at all under the Clean Air Act. And the conservative justices said, defer, defer right. to the agency. Nothing about the importance. This other case comes along, utility air regulatory group comes along, and the, and the conservative justices say, we're not going to defer because of this, this question, which is much smaller than the one in Massachusetts versus EPA, is so big. And the only difference between those, those two situations, as far as I can tell, is that in one case, the agency wanted to take on climate change. In the other case, it didn't. Right. Exactly. I mean, I mean, I, to be honest, that's that is also how how I 
take read that case. I just we should just note for the for the listener, Justice Scalia wrote both of those. <laughs> he wrote the dissent and he wrote. So this isn't like the justices, which I yes. Um, right. And it's, it's super interesting. And like, yeah, this huge, what supposedly hugely consequential question in the, in the UARG decision, ultimately, you know, as you know, for reasons that are really complicated and probably not worth getting into, what ends up happening as a consequence of the court, like overturning the agency's decision is the agencies could still do the permitting requirement for almost everybody that was initially covered in the, in their version of the rule. So something that was supposedly hugely consequential actually turned out to be like a rounding error on what the agency wanted to do. Right. Yes. Really something else. So, okay. So, so the Trump administration, obviously they go through their efforts to uh, unroll the, um, the clean power plan or wind back the clean power plan. And one of the things that I think is probably underappreciated or, or I think it would, it would be good if more folks kind of emphasize this is they didn't try to uh, roll back the endangerment finding, right? They weren't trying to say there's no such thing as climate change. I mean, they might've acted like there was no such thing as climate change, but they weren't saying that, um, which I always thought was a kind of a important and big deal. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And, and notice that the Bush administration didn't say that either. Mm-hmm. They didn't say it's not happening. They said there's uncertainty and we just don't have the authority and we don't want to regulate. Right, right. So the science even, you know, w- when when it's serious <laughs> and the decisions are going to be reviewed, um, you know, the agency recognizes that it it just it would be ridiculous for it to, to deny the, the basic facts. Yeah. Um, so, 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 so then, you know, this is going to bring us to the, to the, to the most recent decision. The Trump administration passes its own, uh, or, um, adopts its own version of regulation under 111 that essentially kind of gets rid of the whole program as it was envisioned under the clean power plan. And, uh, ultimately that leads to litigation unsurprisingly, and that litigation finds its way to the Supreme court and the decision in West Virginia v. EPA. So, so again, you know, this was much more recently, you know, in, in comparison, can, you were, you know, closely involved in both these, both these cases and, and just, you know, following all of this very closely at both times. How would you compare the political, again, the kind of the political, the legislative, the broader dynamic around um, greenhouse gas regulation in the lead up to West Virginia v. EPA compared to in the lead up to Massachusetts v. EPA? Well, I think that the the, uh, the environment w- included a couple of important uh, features, which is one, we had uh, President Donald Trump, who was even, I think, more hostile to environmental regulation than President Bush had been, and was also less um, less meticulous, let's just say, mm-hmm. about the law. And so that um, I think there was a much more... Um, it feels like, to me anyway, a scattershot kind of approach to uh, deregulating. And certainly this implied broadly where the environment was concerned. Yeah, so, that was, that's, so that's right. The, the Bush administration was much smarter. Oh, I'll just go ahead and say it's much smarter <laughs> in how they uh, dealt with these things, which is why the Trump administration lost all the time. It was very ineffective. The other context um, that is obviously of crucial importance is the Supreme Court changed. Mm-hmm. Right between these um, decisions, and so there were three judges, justices appointed by Donald Trump. Uh, Kennedy was long gone, and and um, there's now such a solid six to three, very conservative majority. 
Right. It really, really, is really changes the dynamic. So, so there, of course, the the decision had to do with the agency's authority to regulate under the language that you mentioned earlier. What constitutes a best system of emissions reduction, and whether the essentially the Obama era interpretation was overly broad. And so, the court's going to approach this question. Discretion is going to be a big part of how it's the you know a lens through which it's going to um, answer this question. So so yeah. So what do you think the big takeaways ultimately were from from West Virginia v. EPA? Well, I think what the court ended up doing is to avoid the kind of intricate statutory questions that we had been accustomed to, and and avoided any. Um, nod toward the agency because of its expertise and its mild amount of political accountability. And instead, just created a a quite powerful presumption against ambitious regulation. And that, of course, is the major questions doctrine. It it really hadn't solidified either the existence or certainly the meaning of that doctrine until West Virginia. I mean, there were earlier cases, but but this case really crystallized that as a as a doctrine. And so, if you think about it, what that does is it just it just puts a thumb on the scales against um, against environmental regulation, which takes us very far away from. Massachusetts versus EPA, where whatever he thought of the Clean Air Act and climate change, Justice Kennedy was willing to say, I think the statute is clear, um, right, in in regulating greenhouse gases. But uh, now the the court has created a real kind of, as I say, presumption against ambitious regulation. Yeah. And there's a, just as kind of reiterate a point um, we were talking about earlier is, and I'm just curious what you kind of how you read this. So so the major question jo- doctrine, right, in broad outline says, um, you know, e- I guess even when there's ambiguity in the statute, we're not going to read that as giving agencies um, discretion. We're not going to defer to agencies on these decisions when they are very, very con- um, very consequential, when they're very important, when they are major questions. We're going to assume that Congress wouldn't want to have essentially delegated that decision to the agency. Um Okay, so as we were saying with Massachusetts v. EPA, that was a very important decision that the agency was making. It was deciding not to regulate when it when it turned when it uh, rejected the petition to regulate greenhouse gases under the Clean Air Act. That was extraordinarily um, consequential. And Justice Scalia, writing for the conservative dissent, um, you know, makes a big deal about how the court should be deferring to the agency. And in in this case, in West Virginia v. EPA, the court, of course, makes a big deal out of how big of a decision this is, but um, but it's not any bigger of a decision than the decision that was under under um, review in Massachusetts v. EPA. It's just that the decision came out the other way, right? Where in Mass v. EPA, the agency had decided not to regulate, whereas in West Virginia v. EPA, the issue that was being litigated was the form of agency's regulation. So, so do you think there's embedded within, at least as it's been announced and applied by this court, like an actual anti-regulatory component of the major questions, questions doctrine? Because you can imagine a neutral version, which is if it's important, we're not going to defer. We could query the wisdom of that kind of doctrine, but that would be one form of the doctrine. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A couple of things. I do think there is that. It's, it, it's impossible to read those cases without thinking, huh, why did these cases come out differently? And mm-hmm. the only difference I can see is that 
in one case, the agency got the answer wrong, which is it enacted an ambitious regulatory program. In another, it got the answer right, which is it either did something, it did nothing or did something very weak. And, um, and that's, that is, it's, they don't say it. But all that's right. you just all you do have to do is read the cases to see that point. And it, it, West Virginia itself illustrates this point um, beautifully, even though it's subtle to see, strangely enough. But in that case, because the court, uh, I don't, I won't even get into justiciability if you, oh, yeah. it, it, it's too much. It's too much. But let's just say that through a, a strange series of legal sort of maneuvers, the Supreme Court basically had in front of it both the Clean Power Plan and the um, the uh, Trump replacement for that plan, which was very, very weak. In fact, might have done nothing at all right, literally at the nothing, end of the yeah. day, literally nothing. And, and at the end of the day, the Supreme Court rejected the Clean Power Plan and approved the ACE rule. It, it takes looking through the judgment sheets mm-hmm. and all this, but that that is a fact. So in the very same case, with the very same question presented, which is, does the Clean Air Act allow the agency to enact a program that shifts generation from some kinds of sources to others? In each case, the, the Trump rule, the Obama rule, they were answering the same legal question with basically the same administrative record, that is the same facts in front of them. In one case, they answered yes. In another case, no. In the case where they answered no, the Supreme Court, without even elaborating, without commenting on it, silently blesses the place where they say no. So it's really, this is why I've, I've suggested that it, it, it shouldn't be called the major questions doctrine. It should be called the major answers doctrine. It depends entirely on the answer the agency gives. Right. It's very interesting. So so just to poke on that a little bit and exactly what we mean by that, I could actually imagine two different versions, one a little bit more principled than the others. I'm cu- curious which one you think is happening here. So the I'll give the more principled version first, which would be like a libertarian uh, major questions doctrine, something that was like where there's a major exercise of coercive government authority over the economy and over people's decision making, we're going to be skeptical that Congress um, intended to uh, grant the agency broad discretion to make those decisions. And so we're going to but that's going to be a major question. We're not going to defer. So that'd be the more principled version. The less principled version would be um, whenever an agency decides something, we don't like the answer, either pro or con. Like, because of course the conservative justices are not always libertarian in their orientation. They have some very non-libertarian um, elements. Uh, certainly that's true within the Republican coalition broadly. And so um, it's not really about whether it's the imposition of government authority or not. It's just whether it lines up with the preferences of the justices at the time. Um, so yeah, I'm curious which one of these, um, or maybe it's too early to tell, which one of these versions you think more accurately reflects what's going on. If, if I may, I actually think those are the same thing, mm-hmm. given the justices' prior beliefs. I think they may well be inclined to d- doubt government authority, right? Maybe it's libertarian, um, but... It, it's the same thing as not liking a particular outcome. So I guess I guess I'd push back a little bit in thinking that one is more principled than the other when they align perfectly. The 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 deregulatory perspective, maybe you could call it libertarian, but it aligns perfectly with the deregulatory agenda of the Republican Party. 
I, I guess, yeah, that, that, I think that's fair in broadly. What I'm thinking of is like, there are certain areas where um, liberals are more deregulatory than conservatives. Think immigration or uh, policing or other other domains. So I'm just trying to think outside of the environmental context where, you know, the deregulatory kind of pro-protection thing lines pretty lines up pretty well with, you know, partisan preferences or partisan political programs. I think there are other areas where the Republican Party is actually more pro-government <laughs> than the or pro and, and pro-government power than the Democratic Party. So yeah, and again, this is yeah, yeah. So we'll have to see how that because this is being asserted in all si- sorts right. of cases. So you're right that we haven't seen. I mean, we haven't seen exactly the full sort of blossom <laughs> right. of the of the doctrine. I'll also say, if I may, I'll also say I just think that government. Um, decisions not to act on climate change are actually pretty darn coercive. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think this is right. Just to be clear, this is with a very particular version of no, I get know, it. I get what it. constitutes uh, and like the difference between action and an act and inaction and um, right exactly yeah. from, from a from a from a broad well being perspective, failing to act can be very have extraordinarily serious consequences. Yeah, especially in the, against the backdrop of lots of actions promoting the use and production of fossil fuels. Absolutely, exactly. Um, so, okay, great. So that's where we are. Okay, so that's where we are with the with the West Virginia case, and and this has all been in a way just to kind of um, encapsulate really big changes on the court um, and how the court views questions around things like, you know, broadly deferring to agency judgment, but really specifically um, environmental environmental law. And, you know, we're talking about greenhouse gas emissions kind of specifically, but just an enormous space um, between Mass v. EPA and West Virginia v. EPA in a, in a relatively short amount of time. Now, did you, I mean, this unfolded slowly. We've had a little bit of time to, to you know, kind of cognitively deal with it. But in, in, when you compare those two decisions in your mind, yeah, what, what, do you, what do you make of how the country's been going for the last, you know, nearly 20 years or so, uh, 15 to 20 years, and, and where, the, where, the court, um, where the court has gone? Like, what's, what's your general kind of, uh, sense of of your takeaway there. Oh, I I am I am not happy about it. And what I feel my my takeaway is to some extent that there's this feeling of a phalanx of six conservative justices who are really have the bit in their teeth if you if you want to put it that way. Mm-hmm. Really are running with their power. And um, and so it it becomes quite difficult to look around, especially with something so all purpose as the major questions doctrine that can be used in any kind of a case, and with lower court judges that are more than eager to knock down programs, it can be, I honestly a little dispiriting given the nature of the problem at hand, and the uh, current tenor of the courts. It's um, the the road that we've traveled is is uh, I think pretty pretty sobering. 
Yeah, it is. I mean, I, 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 yeah, I, I tend to agree. Okay, so let's talk about um, just another lens on this uh, that's actually very different legally in a, in a lot of important respects, um, but it kind of tells a similar sobering story over over the very similar time frame. So here we're talking about essentially the jurisdiction of the Clean Water Act, in particular the program that protects wetlands, um, and uh, uh, there was another uh, kind of. Statute, some, there's some statutory language here that has been interpreted over really over a long period of time, several decades, really as long as the Clean Water Act has been around, um, and it had been controversial. The the um, uh, the interpretation of this particular provision, we'll get into it in a second, but. The, the, the contrast that we have here is between a decision where Justice Kennedy was, again, the swing vote, um, this decision, Rapinos, which, um, uh, you know, kind of allowed for quite broad jurisdiction under the Clean Water Act um, wetlands program. And then we're going to kind of move through to the recent decision in Sackett, which was really a huge change. So, so when... So Rapinos wasn't that long before you, you you joined the agency either, and I assume the agency was dealing with that as well. So maybe we could just explain quickly what what that decision was about, and then and then maybe you know how when you during your time during the Obama administration, how folks were were thinking about that decision. Yeah. So the Rapinos decision in two thousand and six was a question about how far the Clean Water Act reaches. It's a really basic question under the statute. What is What are the waters covered by the Clean Water Act? If you're not a water covered by the Clean Water Act, then the Clean Water Act doesn't protect you. <laughs> right. right. And um, so the statute refers to waters. It says that it covers navigable waters defined as waters of the United States. And so the court in Rapinos was uh, was uh, grappling with the question, how do we think about wetlands under this uh, under this um statute? And just to be to be brief about it, the court split badly, just mm-hmm. badly, four one four. So four justices led by Justice Scalia would have taken a narrow view of the statute. Four justices led by Justice Stevens would have take would have deferred to the agency's um, broader view under the statute. And Justice K- Kennedy sat in the middle, really controlling the outcome. And he took uh, what at this point seems like a quaint opinion uh, sort of position for the Supreme Court. He thought that it mattered whether there was that the that the, the ecology of it mattered. In other words, he thought that waters, wetlands that had a significant nexus to more um, sort of traditionally navigable waters, rivers and lakes, for example, that they had a significant um, ecological connection, those were covered. A nexus is what he called it. And so he, he controlled that um, that decision in the way that we sort of treat these things. There was, I think, pretty good argument that the lower courts and that the agency should look to his position for the kind of authoritative view of the court, right? Even though that wasn't a, a traditionally authoritative view. Right. Great. So then, so everyone's like looking to this. It is kind of odd, right? There was no, you know, uh, really in a way, the decision um, left the lower court in place. And so it was probably the Justice Stevens opinion that maybe, but in any case, everyone's looking to to Kennedy and you have the significant nexus um, uh, language, which is evocative. And it, you're right, it absolutely has this connection to the physical world that is, um, it does almost seem quaint. Um, but, you know, 
we are talking about environmental law at the same time. And so, um, so yeah, so how was the Obama administration then kind of grappling with how to deal with, because again, it's very complicated and we, it's good to know what the jurisdiction of the, of the act is, right? People want to know and uh, the field offices want to know when they're writing permits and landowners have an interest in having some clarity about what is or is not covered. Absolutely. So at the time, it's just like, what do we do, right? What do we do? There had been a, an interim decision, I think, from the Bush administration. The question is, what could the Obama administration do? There's a big question of procedural question. Can they just do so-called guidance? Can they just tell their field offices, here's what we want you to look for when you're inspecting a property to see whether there's a wetland. Here are the things you should look for. Or do we need to do a rule, in which case there's a big process, the public comments, you have to explain yourself and on down the line. So there's that initial question. And then the question of what does this decision mean, right? Mm-hmm. And the Supreme Court had been silent, was silent until the Sackett case that we're about to talk about, about exactly what it meant. And it's for one for confusion. And so the agency was just trying to to grapple with that, figure out how to do it procedurally, and then what to say about the wetlands that were covered given the, the massive split in the court. Right, exactly. So it's a really it's a really hard thing for the for the agency. And of course, you know, some folks um, perhaps you don't follow this, you know, very, very closely you know, it can be hard to sympathize with the agency or people don't kind of realize like the agency is often just in an incredibly difficult position of having to, you know, make these difficult decisions. They're not getting a lot of guidance from the courts. And there's just, you know, there's another really, as you well know, there's this very hard problem, which is the agency has to commit an enormous amount of resources to rulemaking and to uh, collecting comments and processing the comments and working with stakeholders and thinking through things and bringing in the engineers and bringing in the lawyers. And, you know, it's a huge commitment of resources. And then you like hope and cross your fingers when it eventually goes out the door and gets litigated that that, you know, five, six, seven, you know, or longer years of effort um, is going to just not get totally dinged by the court. It's really quite a, it's a very difficult position that agencies are in often. Absolutely. Absolutely. It takes years, a huge amount of effort, a huge number of resources. It's the most deliberative process. I'm just going to say it in the United States. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it yeah. goes through so much vetting. So many different people have eyes on those rules. It's the only agency in government, or the only institution in government, the administrative agency, that needs to explain itself in reason terms mm-hmm. when it makes a big decision. The only And so at the end of the day, when you have a rule, it at least should get a a nod. At least it is a significant um, sort of achievement in a way, Mm -hmm. but certainly a significant uh, decision. And if the agency is um, afraid that at the end of the day, either the Supreme Court or some district court judge, let's say Mm -hmm. Texas, Louisiana, is going to look at it, sort of eyeball the problem and say, that looks big to me, and strike it down. What does that do to the agency's mission, to its ability to do its job, even to morale among the staff, which I'm sure lots of people don't really care about, but you should, actually. You should. And so that that, that is the disjunction between the incredibly deliberative, laborious process of issuing a rule and the very back-of-the-envelope, quick-look process so-called of the major questions doctrine is just painful. Yeah, it really is. And it's not like you could check either. You know, it's like at the beginning of the process, you could say, hey, court, you know, is this a major question? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
Um, okay, so so the agency, you know, um, issues g- goes down the rulemaking path, right? Issues of the waters of the United States rule, you know, that gets litigated. The litigation history of, of this is even more complicated than the <laughs> Clean Power Plan. There's it, there's injunctions. There's you know di- you know different appeals courts doing different things. There's it goes up to the Supreme Court on various kind of like technical jurisdictional type things. Eventually, in any case. Um, the Trump administration uh, comes into power. They issue their own version. All of this gets litigated, gets up to the Supreme Court, and we have the Sackett decision. So we're essentially revisiting uh, Rapinos. I mean, through the Sackett decision, was I mean, is there was there any notable differences um, that are worth mentioning, or is it literally just like, hey, let's get another look at this essentially exactly the same question? Well, I don't know if you have anything in mind, but it does strike oh, me. I don't. It, oh, yeah. It's the same question. It's yeah. the same question with a very different answer, which is significant nexus. No, thank you. No justice stood up for it. Nine justices, mm. right, um, yep. rejected significant nexus. So that is that is quite stunning after a period in which that had, as I say, you know, a good argument was that that should be should have been the reigning principle. Everybody rejects it. Right, and and so we have a opinion written by Justice Alito in this case, and and so what are the so the so as you note the question. I mean, one way I kind of think about this is you know there's a sliding scale in some sense between water bodies that everybody recognizes are are in the jurisdiction of the of the Clean Water Act, and no one is trying to deny this. Um, and that would be your, you know, just take a, a river or a lake or something like that. That's clearly in. And then, you know, you can slide it down to, I mean, the reality is water is all interconnected. It's really, we live in a big hydrological system. And so if you're going to have limits, you know, there could be, um, you know, it could, it could go very, very far indeed into a very small, um, you know, saturated land or something like that, let's just say. And then we're going to draw a line somewhere on where the jurisdiction is going to be. And the significant nexus, as you know, it is kind of um, draws on some ecological concepts, and it's really about like how substantial is the degree of connection between the wetland in this um, in this picture and some traditional jurisdictional water body. And so, what do, and so that's the the significant nexus. And the Obama administration put out the Waters of the U.S. rule, which kind of clarified what was in and what was out. There's all kinds of complicated questions around like seasonally (laughs) inundated lands, stuff that dries up and so on and so forth. And so there's all this kind of rulemaking to try to clarify that. And um, yes, and then the Trump administration does its own version, dialing that way, 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 way back. And what what does the Supreme Court ultimately decide this they're interpreting the statute, so they're saying what the statute ultimately says. And what is what is what do we get in the second decision? Well, one, we get the idea that um, waters in the United States, those waters that are that are to be protected under the statute, are, um, and I'm quoting here because it's so striking, relatively permanent bodies of water connected to traditional interstate navigable waters. So in uh, traditional navigable waters. So there's a question like, like it, it, it whether it's navigable has nothing to do whether it's ecologically significant. Mm-hmm. Nothing. 
to do with that. And note, again, you could say this, the Congress itself threw away navigable when it said the waters are that we're talking about are navigable, but we're going to define them as waters of the United States, which is much, much broader. So they say those are the, the, the water bodies of water to be um, to be um, protected, but then said if you have a, a wetland, it has to be um, have continuous surface connection to those kinds of waters. So it strikes me, and tell me if you think this is unfair, but it just seems like a very cartoonish view mm. about waters in the United States. It's like it's like the kind of thing that children's books would <laughs> show us were rivers and lakes, you know, that we can tell where they end and where they begin. We can tell whether a tributary, right, is a river. What is it? Is it a river? Mm-hmm. Is it? Right. What, what is it? Um, and and so the, the idea that we can just kind of, again, kind of eyeball it is mm-hmm. just massively um, uh, ignorant, to me. And also, just to get back to your theme about how far we've come in just a few short years, again, Justice Kennedy's approach at least had some ecological connection. He was sensitive to the purpose of the Clean Water Act, which is to keep the waters clean. That's not true of the Supreme Court. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's really it really is striking, and so so there's um, and we could get into the the quality or lack thereof of the of the legal reasoning that drives the court's decision, but I think it's worth pausing and reflecting on what does this do to the in the real world, right? So what is what are the consequences of the degree to which the court has dialed back on the agency's or on the, the statutes, I should say, this, you know, the, what the statute has, you know, claims jurisdiction over. Like, what does that kind of mean on the ground for, in particular, we have this very important, very substantial wetlands program that, you know, agencies of both political parties have been administering, you know, for decades now. So what is the, what is the on the ground significance of this decision? Yeah, I think, I think, you know, it remains to be seen exactly what it is, but it strikes me as far as I've read, it it eliminates a significant portion of the EPA's uh, jurisdiction, or at least that's the um, the idea going, you know, in the immediate aftermath of the case. I don't remember what the numbers are. Maybe you have them, but they're um, they're sort of appallingly large. The acreage that um, seems to be eliminated by the court's approach. Right, and of course, we don't want to make two dire predictions in a sense, because it could always work out to be a slightly better and we don't want to argue in favor that there's only one interpretation of this decision. So we have to be a little circumspect. Yeah, yeah. for sure. That That's always, I think, though, a delicate balance. Right. Yeah. Right. Because you want to be realistic about what it actually accomplishes too. Um, and, and I think um, just to be, again, just super clear, what this means is that um, you know, wetlands, everyone agrees are wetlands, um, that would have been, there would have been a regulatory regime that governs them, that tells you what kinds of activities you can and can't undertake on these wetlands, which have the purpose of essentially preserving these ecologically important areas um, are just going to not be regulated, at least at the federal level. So one argument that, you know, folks might, you know, think of um, at this moment would be, well, Okay, does that mean they're entirely unregulated or can states kind of play a role? Is there some other actor out there that could um, be engaged in this, in this, you know, uh, in, in protecting wetlands that maybe should give us at least some comfort that, that there will be someone stepping into the regulatory void? 
Yeah, I think states could could step up. I think some states uh, tend to to step up, um, but they don't have to, right? right? And the 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 very weird thing to me, one of the weird things about this decision to me is that the Clean Water Act of 1972, which is a basic statute we're talking about, was written in a self-conscious rejection of the state-by-state approach, right? Mm -hmm. It was written because it had been, in the words of Senator Muskie, a failure in every respect. And so the idea that the Supreme Court comes today and cites the preservation of state autonomy as a reason to cut way back on the authority of EPA to protect waters is just deeply problematic in in my opinion because the clean water act was itself a really really um powerful rejection of that of that kind of approach yeah so okay so now that we've got these these two different timelines coming to fruition one on the you know basically um dealing with certainly two of if not the two most important environmental statutes i mean obviously the i don't want to just you know, uh, uh, imply that the Clean- Endangered Species Act isn't important, right? <laughs> or NEPA or whatever else, but two very important, uh, two very important statutes and really huge changes, right? Fundamental in the, in the case of the Clean Water Act. Um, we're talking about the jurisdiction over a huge, in, you know, huge program. And, um, and the, and the Clean Air Act, the question is whether the agency can address, you know, or how it, it functionally can address one of the, or if not the single most important environmental issue facing the world. Um, okay, so that's that's where we're at. And, you know, I guess the question is, what does this kind of mean going forward? I mean, obviously the court has become, the court's always been, at least for as long as I've been paying attention, quite a controversial institution. Uh, arguably it is at its most controversial that it's ever been, or certainly um, for many, many, many years. Uh, public opinion of the court is quite disfavorable, um, but we still have the 6-3 majority and it doesn't look like that's gonna change anytime soon. Um, or, and if it does, it will just go to a 5-4 majority. There's, it could be a very long time that we're dealing with some version of this court, decades potentially. And so I guess the question is, what does that mean? What does that mean for executive action? What does it mean for environmental groups as they're strategizing, um, for folks at the agency as they're considering what to do? Um, you know, even thinking about Congress, like what what is the... How do how do you feel about the strategic situation, and and what what are your thoughts about you know what it what it means for the next potentially couple of decades? Well, I, I I'll, I'll be honest, I really do worry. I, I know that it, it's sometimes at the, at the, this portion of a show, it's very it's good to have good a, a hopeful <laughs> idea. Right. Right. But in in this moment, we don't know what the future holds. Things could mm-hmm. change tomorrow, but in this moment, it doesn't look. Uh, it doesn't look good. Nevertheless, I'll say this, that that there are people out there just hitting everything they have, right? Getting getting out there with arguments and lawsuits and petitions with everything that they have. And and so that it seems to me that at some point that that kind of wall has to break. Hmm. And um, but that's that may be sort of the triumph of hope over experience. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there is a, um, I mean, nothing lasts forever, as you, as, as, as you said, and, and 20 years is a long time, but it's not forever, of course. 
and um, and things can change. It's, it's, it is it is very interesting, but it is hard to see what that what that path looks like. I mean, folks are focusing on the states, but the courts seem like let's just say this: the courts seem like a place uh, that we have to deal with rather than a a, a place that we could look to for. Um, kind of for help in some sense. Yeah, that's what it, that, that is what it feels like. And I guess that's a, a good place to be coming to a conclusion in the sense that that also illustrates the long road we've traveled, right? Since, Mm -hmm. um, since, um, before, uh, when within Massachusetts versus EPA, we actually looked to the court to rescue us from a bad government decision. Right. And that, that seems much less on the agenda these days. I think so. Yeah. Well, it's a bit of a downer of a note, but um, but that's just where we find ourselves, right? And and we just need to be honest about that. So um, I appreciate you taking the time. Lisa, it's been a super interesting, if somewhat dispiriting conversation. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, thanks for all of your, your great scholarship and all of the great work that, that you've done in the, in the public interest over the years. Thanks for having me. And listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, let us know. You can give us a like, a rating, subscribe to the podcast, and follow us on social media. It'd be great to hear from you. Till next time.